Good morning, Salt Church. We're going to be in Romans 11, if you'll start with me in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God reply to him? I have kept, your, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I, I ask, did they stumble in order that they may, might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I, as I am a, an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But as some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut down... Oops, sorry. <laughs> For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away my sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who knows, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has his counselor? 
or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid. For him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Yeah, let's give it up for Matt. That is a lot of scripture. Dude, crush that. Well, good morning, Salt Church. How are we feeling? Uh, my name is uh, Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So glad that you guys have joined us. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, Zoe's Cafe has officially become our new location, and uh, we are excited uh, to see what God is going to do in this space in 2024. Uh, technically, this room is called the Bel Air, uh, so I want to just take a moment and formally declare that the Fresh Prince Bel Air theme song is now the national anthem for Salt Church. Anybody, you guys know Fresh Prince Bel Air? We, we good? Every, okay, if you don't know, you're missing out on greatness. Go on Hulu. TV used to be good. Google the Carlton dance. Uh, it's a good. It's a good time. Uh, anyway, we believe here at Salt Church that the church is not a building. But the church is a people that gathers inside of a building to make much of Jesus. Much, much like a family is not a home, but a family is a group of people that gathers inside of a home. And so we're excited to gather here together with you guys every week as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to make much of Jesus. Guys, the story that God wrote at Campus Commons, where we're meeting this last year, was incredible. God did some amazing things. People were saved. People heard the gospel preached. People were baptized. People found community for the first time, took communion for the first time, were emboldened to share the gospel for the first time and invite people into that space that they too might become disciples of Jesus. And guys, that's just chapter one. This is chapter two. What, what might God do in this space? And it's our hope and our prayer that God might do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open that up to Romans uh, chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be in that text that you just heard. Uh, one of the things that I love is a good plan. Uh, like, I love uh, having a strategy session, brainstorming, trying to come up with a good plan. For example, like, I even love if I'm, like, playing a board game or a card game for, like, the first time, like, I love coming up with a plan of how I'm going to dominate and win, right? Uh, if I'm going on vacation, I love to come up with a plan that's going to detail all the things that we're going to do. I even love if, if I'm going to hide all the cookies in my house from my kids, I love coming up with a plan of how to do that. I love a good plan. And one plan that I love uh, to learn about and study is how they planned D-Day in World War II when the Allied forces invaded Normandy, France uh, into uh, Nazi-occupied territory to begin that invasion of Europe and turn the tide in the war. And this was an incredible plan, what they came up with. It was bold and it was dangerous, and yet it failed to account for a lot of unexpected things along the way. Sorry, by the way, I'm a middle-aged dad, so most of my illustrations are going to be World War II, Smoke Meats, Roman Empire, 
I apologize in advance. Um, anyway, uh, D-Day uh, was this incredible plan. It was kind of a miracle that it worked because there were so many things that went wrong. For example, initially the plan was to send paratroopers inland uh, to drop them off, and then when the boats came in ashore, the Nazi front would have to fight on both sides. But they didn't account or they miscalculated for some of the weather, and the paratroopers got blown off course, and the ships, when they were coming ashore, uh, some of them were miles off course. So before even the fighting began, mistakes had been made. And they were also supposed to uh, arrive at the beaches with these tanks that they actually designed to float into shore, and it actually didn't work for a lot of them, and most of them sank, especially at a place like Omaha Beach. And the problem with that is the tanks were supposed to be cover for uh, the troops coming ashore, and when the tanks didn't arrive, it was open season, and a lot, there was a brutal loss of life. It was one of the most uh, brutal loss of lives in the entire world war. And perhaps what I find most fascinating is actually like they almost abandoned D-Day. Like they almost just stopped the invasion, but the commanding officers on the beach chose to press through, took responsibility for the mission, and humbly laid their lives on the line to see it through, and it worked. They eventually took Normandy. And, and of course, at the time, I, I'm not so sure they understood the full capacity of this victory because it did turn the tide of the war. Less than a year later, some of these troops would have been in Berlin, Germany, ending or celebrating the end of the war. But it traces back to D-Day and the planning that went into this invasion. Now, I bring all this up because I think, honestly, for most Christians, when we take a look at God's plan for the world, when we take a look at God's plan throughout human history, it's easy for us to think like God is planning or having a strategy session or brainstorming and enacting his plan the same way they did D-Day. Yeah, God has a bold, uh, dangerous plan even to save humanity from their sins, but I don't know. It kind of looks like God did not prepare for the unexpected, right? I mean, it's kind of a miracle that God's plan is even getting off the ground in the first place because everywhere I look, it just seems like everything's gone wrong. Right? Like, how many of us have asked questions like this? I mean, if God's plan is so good, why does it look like there's mistakes in my life? If God's plan is so perfect, why does it look like everything around? Why does he allow bad things to happen in my life? Why does everything around me look like it's going awful? If God always does what he has planned, then does it even matter what I do? Because if he's going to do what he wants anyways, then does my responsibility and my choices even matter? If God's plan has so many unanswered questions, then can I be confident that God's going to really do what he says he's going to do? Is he really worth my worship if God just seems to be winging it and throwing together his plan for human history at the last minute? Because this morning, there are people in this room who deep down are asking questions like this and are wondering, God, can I trust you? Is your plan good? And I know that there's people deep down asking this question because there's people in this room that are going through stuff. You've had a job loss. You're in a financial crisis. You're struggling with infertility. You have chronic pain. You have the loss of a loved one. Or maybe you're just experiencing doubt and uncertainty and these kinds of things are coming up in your brain, and when you put your head down on your pillow at night, you're wondering, God, can I trust your plan for my life? Can I trust your plan? This is what I want to address 
this morning. In Romans 11, Paul is going to pull back the cosmic curtain on human history, and he's going to reveal God's plan for how he intends to bring about salvation for his people. And my big takeaway that I want us to get from this incredibly complex text, you just heard it read, it's one of the most complex texts in your Bible, but this is the takeaway that I think it is driving home. This is the main point. If you don't get anything else, get this. If you can trust God's plan to save, you can trust his plan in your life. If you can trust God's plan to save, you can trust his plan in your life. So this text essentially breaks down into five parts. So there's five ways I want to look at God's plan to save in order that we might trust him with the plan in our lives. So let's take a look at these five points. Don't worry, we'll be done by Easter. Um, The first point is this. God's plan doesn't have mistakes. God's plan doesn't have mistakes. Notice in verse 1, it asks this question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, this question is bringing up an issue or a serious problem that Paul wants to address here in Romans chapter 11, and it's this. If God is so faithful to save Israel, then why are there so few Jewish people who have actually accepted Jesus? And and why are there so many Jews who have rejected him? If he's so faithful to save Israel, then why did so many people miss it with Jesus? Well, to begin to answer this problem, Paul's like, look, this has always been God's plan to save a small remnant of his people. It does not mean he's rejected them. This has always been in his plan. To prove this, Paul says, look at me. I'm Jewish and God saved me. So, and I'm not the only one, like there's other, others of us, the apostles were Jesus followers, there's people throughout Acts that were Jewish that get converted, he's like, I'm not the only one, God saved me, which means there's, a, yeah, we're not a lot, there's not a lot of us, but there is a few of us, so it can't just mean that God's rejected his people wholesale. And then to, to kind of back this up, he's like, actually, this is kind of the way God has always worked. Go back to your Old Testament and see Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only true prophet in his day. He was kind of depressed, and God's like, bro, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 people over here that are following me that you have no idea about. And so the truth that Paul is trying to drive home here is that God did not make a mistake when all of these Israelites reject Jesus. It's always been his MO to save a small remnant of his people. But then the question becomes then, okay, God, why? Why is it so few people? Why are so few people? Why do so few Israelites accept Jesus? Why why are you content to work with small numbers? And I think part of the answer is this. God's people tend to be small because it shows off how big God is. I, I mean, think about it. God has done some pretty incredible things with a small group of people here in Salt Church. God has done an an incredible uh, thing through a small group of people called the Israelites. And why does he choose to do that? Because in the end, who gets the credit if a small group of people goes on and does great things? Who gets the credit is Jesus because he's a big God. This is what he does with Israel. There's no way Israel can come before God and be like, hey, it makes sense, all the things we've accomplished in the world. Like, it makes sense, because look at how, how big and awesome we are. And likewise, guys, here at Salt Church, we, we can't say that either. Like, we can't be like, oh, man, look, you know, it makes sense why Salt Church is doing some incredible things. Look at all the resources we have. 
Look at the gifted leadership we have. Look at how many people we have and how, how many gifts they offer. No, because none of us can say that. Everything that God has done through his people throughout the ages has always been by his grace and never by our works. The gospel is not about the grind. The gospel is about God's grace. God's people have always been small so that, in the world, so that the world sees how big God is. Just think about this in history, guys. Why did God choose to save Israel? Do you know? There's an answer in the scripture. Why did God choose to save Israel? Deuteronomy 7.7 7 gives us a hint. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you, this is Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. See, God didn't choose Israel because they're awesome and they were the best. God chose them because they were the smallest and the weakest. And yet because God chose Israel, God, or yet through Israel, even though they were small, God, who is so big, set off a plan that would change the world. Walk with me through the church history here. If you lived in the first century, you would never have been able to grasp that the Roman Empire the most powerful government the world had ever seen would one day fall and taking its place would be this ragtag group of Jesus followers that just started with 12 dudes and yet multiplied into thousands and turned the ancient world upside down. You never would have predicted that. And if you had lived in the fourth century, you never would have been able to predict that the center of Christianity would move or shift to the English-speaking world because at that time, that was a bunch of disorganized tribes that were barbarians. You never would have predicted that. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, when European Christianity was going liberal and secular, you never would have guessed that this upstart country called the United States, a place that Paul didn't even know existed on the globe, would eventually become the most or the biggest missions-sending group of people in the history of the world, a movement that, by the way, if you're a college student, primarily started with college students. And just... A hundred years ago, we never would have thought that the church would be growing fastest in, in, in places like the Pacific Rim and Latin America and Africa and countries that are less than 1% Christian, places that a few decades ago would have been completely closed to the gospel and, da and dangerous for Christians. And even today, as we look at the church, guys, in this postmodern, post-Christian Western world, and it's filled with abuse and deconstruction. And oh, by the way, more Christians have left the American church than all the Christians who gave their lives to Jesus in every single American revival combined. And yet I look at that situation, and you know what I see? I don't see despair. I see hope. And I'm holding out faith that God doesn't make mistakes because even when our numbers are few, guys, that's when God gets to be great. The story of God's people is only a story that God could have planned from start to finish. Because this should give you incredible hope this morning. Because when you look at your life and you think, man, God's made some mistakes. I'm not supposed to be in this position. I thought I'd be further ahead. I'm way more behind. I thought I would be more holy. I thought I would have more money. I thought I would be in a, a, a position of influence and I'm not. God's clearly made some mistakes in my life. And guys, I want to encourage you, the places that you think that God has made a mistake, I want you to reframe your vision because maybe it's a moment for you to see how big God is. What is small in your life can actually be a chance for God to move. If you can trust God's plan to save, you can trust his plan in your life. The second way to look at God's plan is this. God's plan uses the worst to bring about the best. God's plan uses the worst to bring about the best. Verse 11 says this. So I ask, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? He's talking again here about Israel. By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, this verse is picking up on an issue that was brought up in verses 7 through 10, and it's this. Okay, Paul, I get it. God picked a small remnant to show off how big he is, but that still doesn't fully explain why have so many Israelites rejected Jesus then? You still need to explain that part. And Paul here is like, let me give you a little bit more backstory of how God has planned this. The rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people is actually working to increase the number of people by bringing in the Gentiles. You catch that? The rejection of the Jesus by the Jewish people, God is actually using and working to increase the number of his people by bringing in the Gentiles. And Paul, and again, Paul here is basically saying, guys, this is God's MO. This is what God does. God takes some of the things that we think are the worst things to happen in human history, and he doesn't work in d- despite them. He works through them to bring about his plan, and he uses them to advance his agenda. Guys, one of the worst endings to the Old Testament is that in the New Testament, these Israelite people who had seen God throughout the centuries save them over and over and over again. These same people, when God comes to them in the form of Jesus Christ, they miss it. That's one of the worst endings to your Old Testament. And yet God uses this awful moment of the Jews rejecting the Savior to bring about his amazing plan to save the rest of the world. Because this principle is even at the heart of the gospel. What's the worst thing to ever happen in human history? It's the worst moment in human history. It's the death of Christ. I mean, think about that plan for a second. The Son of God, the perfect one, the Holy One, comes to us with his arms extended and says, I can save you. I can save you from your sins. And what does God have planned? He lets sinners brutally hang his own son on a cross and die. That's the plan, God? Oh, yeah. Because without the death of Christ, there is no salvation. God doesn't see the cross as a problem for his plan. God sees the cross as the pathway for his plan. The rejection of the Jewish people is not something God is working against. It's something he's using to advance his own plan. And guys, as if that wasn't enough, Paul says that the other part of God's plan is to use the Gentiles coming in to make the Jewish people jealous so that they want to come back in. Now, typically we would say jealousy is not a good thing, but what Paul here is essentially talking about is FOMO or fear of missing out. The Jewish people are going to have FOMO. They're going to have a fear of missing out. It would be like if I invited Keith uh, to hang out on the weekend. And he was like, no, bro, I'm going to go get a haircut for the fifth time this month. And uh, I was like, okay. Um, and then so the weekend transpires and Keith on Sunday night goes on to Instagram and he sees that I, I've been ski. He sees on my profile, I've posted pictures and he sees that I've been skiing. I went hunting. I watched a bunch of movies. I ate spicy food. I took an ice bath, took pictures of Bernice mountain dogs, you know, whatever. Like, how's Keith going to react in that moment? He's going to be like, he's going to have FOMO, right? Those are some of his absolute favorite things. He's going to be like, dude, I'm so jealous of your weekend. I should have said yes. 
Guys, this is similar to what Paul is getting at here. He's saying the Gentiles coming into the family of God, it's gonna create FOMO on the part of the Jewish people. They're gonna be so jealous that they will begin to wish they had said yes to Jesus. You actually, guys, see this play out in your New Testament. You see this in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, you have a problem in the early church. The Gentile widows are not being cared for. And so the apostles, they address the issue and they appoint some people uh, to take care of the widows and everybody lives happily ever after. Most people focus on that. Most people miss the ending of that story. The ending of Acts 6 ends with a bunch of Jewish priests coming to faith. Why? It's because they looked at the church and they said, they're taking care of the poor. They're taking care of the needy. Wait a minute. That's who we are supposed to be as God's people. I want in on that. If God's going to work through them, I want in on that. And they gave their lives to Jesus. They had FOMO. And God used that to bring them to faith. Now, what does this have to do with you? And what does this have to do with me and the plan of God that he's working in our lives? Let me just say this. Guys, the worst, thing that hap- the worst things that happen in our lives are usually the things that draw us closest to Jesus. And not only that, they're often the things that God uses to bring others to faith in Jesus as well. I know people who have gone through horrible situations in their lives. I know people who have gone through with an abortion. I know people who have lost a loved one. I know people who are struggling with things like pornography and alcoholism, and yet God met them in the midst of that and saved them. But then, as is so often God's plan, he uses the stories of those people's lives to reach others who are dealing with the same circumstance. Because one time I was sharing with someone about my dad passing away from cancer and all the things that Jesus was teaching me in the midst of that. And unbeknownst to me, this person had actually received a cancer diagnosis just a month before. And I got an email from this person saying, man, Thank you so much for sharing your story and how Jesus brought you closer to him in that moment. It's encouraged me to know that Jesus is gonna be close to me in this moment. And guys, you all have stories like this. And God not only wants to work in you, he wants to work through you to the point where people look at your life and say, man, I'm jealous of how Jesus met you in that story. And if he can save you in the midst of your pain and your grief and your heartache and your addiction, then maybe he can do that for me too. Salt Church, put, put, the, put the story together here. If God can bring about the salvation of the Gentiles through something as bad as the Jewish people rejecting Jesus, then certainly he can bring about salvation in your life no matter how bleak or dark the circumstance looks. And if God, in turn, can use the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous, as he can use your story, no matter how boring or messed up you think it is, to make the people around you have FOMO when it comes to following Jesus. If you can trust God's plan to save, you can trust his plan in your life. All right, third way to look at God's plan. God's plan shouldn't create pride, but rather humility. God's plan shouldn't create pride, but rather humility. Verses 17 through 22 say this. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were gathered in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the other branches. If you, if you are, remember 
It is not you who, are, who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Okay, so Paul here kind of takes a detour, and he brings up this analogy as a way to talk about or talk to the Gentile Christians. That's us, right? If you're not Jewish, you're Gen- you're ever- Gentiles are everybody else who's not Jewish. That's everyone in this room, most likely. Uh, so he is talking specifically to us. And he uses this analogy of an ingrafted branch. Oftentimes in ancient culture, to get a tree to bear fruit, uh, you would lop off uh, certain branches and then you would take another branch from another olive tree and you would actually like, kind of like tape it down to where you brought, uh, cut that branch off and it would bring nutrients back into that plant so that it could bear more fruit. That's kind of the, the, the picture that he's using here, but he's using it to, to make a specific point. He's saying this to the Gentiles. He's saying, hey, you Gentiles who have come into, that's us, who have come into the church, who have come into the family of God, don't make the same mistake the Jewish people did in the Old Testament. They thought it didn't matter how they lived because they were connected to all of these amazing promises from God, just like a branch is connected to the root. But God cut them off from salvation because their faith wasn't genuine. And then he says, he cuts them off just like a a branch is cut off from a root, right? Or cut off from a tree. And then he says, hey, if you go down that same road, if you start thinking the same thing, like, oh, we can live how we want, because God has connected us to the same promises that the Jewish people have, just like you would graft in a new branch, right? You too, though, will get cut off just like the Jewish people. And guys, we see this in the church today, do we not? There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of Christians gathering in churches today, making the exact same mistake that the Jewish people did. They think that, oh, if God saved me, then it does not matter how I live. I'm automatically connected to the root. I'll never be cut off. And Paul's warning it here is saying, nah, don't you dare presume that. Guys, there, this is a, a reality. The, the, the graveness and seriousness of this is real. So you need to dial in here for a second. If you have prayed a prayer when you were younger, if you have gone to Bible camp and said, I need Jesus, and you, you want him to save you from the penalty of your sin. You asked for that. But you don't give a rip about obedience. You could care less about following Jesus. And you don't want anything to do with removing the presence of sin from your life. You're making the same mistake as the Israelites did. And the warning here is you will be cut off. I run into so many Christians who want Jesus as their Savior and not as their Lord, which, by the way, does not exist in your New Testament. That, that's not a, you cannot hold that position to say, I want Jesus to save me from my sins, but he has no right to tell me how to live. You don't get that option with Jesus. I actually had a college roommate one time tell me it didn't matter that he was sleeping with his girlfriend or cheating on his exams because he knew that God was just going to forgive him in the end. That's, that's an absolute scary thing to say because what he doesn't realize is that God's going to cut him off in the end if he continues to live that way. 
That's not, a, that's not only a scary thing to say, guys, that's actually a stuck-up thing to say. It's like a rich kid thinking, I can, I can just get away with whatever I want because daddy will come and bail me out. So Paul's call and warning to us is saying, hey, don't be so prideful and arrogant that you just assume that if God saves you, that you can just live how you want. Now, at this point, some might want to say, wait a minute, John, does this mean you can lose your salvation? No, that's not what I mean, but since you brought it up, let's go there. Uh, I'll give you a really easy answer to this question. If you go around thinking you can live how you want because God has saved you, it actually means you're probably not saved because you're showing that you don't even know what you have in salvation. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says it great. It says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, now, so now, not only uh, yeah, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. This is the part I want us to uh, catch. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, what Paul is saying here that you need to catch this, Paul is saying you don't work for your salvation. Paul is saying you work from your salvation. In other words, if we're saved, it means we'll work to please God. We don't work in order to be saved, but because we are saved, then we obey, then we work. doesn't mean you need to be perfect to prove that you have received salvation or hit a quota of good works to show that you're saved, but it does mean that if you, if you don't care about obedience at all, it probably means you don't care about salvation either. Think of it like a marriage. At my wedding ceremony, my wife made some radical promises to me, and I know this because I know me, and to promise some of the things that she said is a big deal. She said, I'm going to be with you in sickness and in health for rich or for poor. But what would happen if a week into our marriage, I was like, okay, babe, I'm moving out. I got this new girlfriend. See you later. What would happen? My wife would probably not only cut me off, she would probably want to physically cut me because I am showing that I don't actually value the relationship. I have no idea. I'm proving that I have no idea how amazing it is to be in a relationship with my wife. The same is true for Christians. If, if we know how amazing it is to be in a relationship with God, that will begin to change the way that we live. If we're not changing, if we're not obeying, it probably shows that we don't have a relationship with God. If we're so cocky that we think we can live how we want because we're saved, it proves that we don't know how amazing it is to have a relationship with God. The very idea that God chooses to save shouldn't make us haughty, it should make us humble. If we can claim to trust God's plan to save, it better be reflected by our obedience as we live out that plan that he has for our lives. The fourth way to look at God's plan is God's plan is not done. God's plan is not done. Verses 25 through 27 say this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, I'm not gonna lie, this is one of the weirdest <laughs> Chapter 11 is weird to begin with. This is one of the weirdest verses in the chapter. It's one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. It's really hard to get some hand, like, what, are, what is happening, Paul? What are you talking about? So let me try to get some handles on this. Paul is returning to an earlier section in the chapter. He's, come, he's going back to Romans, uh, or Romans 11, 
verses 7 through 10, where he talked about Israel rejecting Jesus and actually being hardened towards him. And it's almost like Paul is anticipating some pushback from some people and being like, wait a minute, Paul, is that the end of the story? Israel's just going to end rejecting Jesus? I mean, we know, okay, you explained it. God hasn't rejected his people. You, explain, you answer that question. But is every generation of Jewish people going to reject him forever? That's the end of the story? Paul's like, no. He says there's going to come a day in the future when all Israel will be saved. Now, we have to unpack this here a second. What does he mean by all Israel? He does not mean literally every single Jewish, Israelite, Hebrew person that has ever walked the planet. He does, by all Israel, he's not meaning every single Israelite. The Bible will often refer to all Israel, and it doesn't mean every single Israelite when it does so. For, let me give you an example. Joshua 3, 7 says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, does this mean every single Israelite, without exception, uh, exalted the leadership of Joshua? No. We know this because a few chapters later, Achan, who is an Israelite, will disobey Joshua's orders, and when they take Jericho, he's going to take some money. And in fact, Achan is cut off from God's people. The ground comes and swallows him up. What does that prove? It proves that, that Achan, an Israelite, actually did not exalt Joshua's words. So by all Israel there, Joshua can't re be referring to every single person without exception. And neither, the same is true for Paul here. Neither is Paul referring to every single Israelite when he says all Israel. Also, if you need just Brief context here of 9 through 11 is kind of one unit. And if you go back to Romans chapter 9, Paul has already shown that just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're a true Israelite. He's already made that point. So clearly he's not talking about every Israelite. And so what needs to be said here, guys, is there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, period. If a Jewish person dies without placing their faith in Jesus, they're not saved just because they're Jewish. You've got to put your faith in Jesus or you're not saved. There is salvation in no one else. So what is Paul meaning when he says all Israel? He essentially means like generally speaking as a people group, there's going to become a day where the majority, not everyone, but the majority of them in that generation are going to give their lives to Jesus. There's a time where a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that's us, are going to come into the faith. That's happening right now. And sometime in the future, there's going to be, whether it's a long span time or whether it's like one specific time, I don't know, the, the scriptures isn't clear on this, but there's going to be a time where there's going to be a generation of Jewish people that are by and large going to give their lives to Jesus, which is incredible. Now, whenever you're dealing with uh, the future of Israel, people automatically start thinking about the modern nation state of Israel as it exists today. And I would be incredibly tone deaf as one of your pastors uh, to our current culture if I didn't say something regarding the upheaval and just the horrible atrocities that are happening uh, in that part of the world. Let me just say, I don't pretend to be a political science expert. Um, and the little that I do know about the nation state of Israel that started in 1945, 
it, it is a complex situation in that part of the world. But as a teacher of the Bible, let me stand on some truths this morning and say this. Because we can absolutely call out the terrorism of Hamas and the brutal treatment of Israeli men, women, and children and condemn that without hesitation. People are created in the image of God and deserve to be treated as such. And yet at the same time, guys, we can pray for a peaceful resolution in that area between the Jewish people and the Palestinian people because God's people should always be about peace. It's ultimately our future. You don't believe me? Look at Zechariah 9.10. This is a prophecy over the Jewish people. It says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. What he's saying here is I'm gonna take away your weapons of war and he, that's Israel, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. God's plan is not ultimately over until there is peace in the Middle East and everywhere else in the world. Now, having said that, I don't think that the main point of these verses is to give us some prophetic prediction about the future of the Israeli state, the nation state of Israel. Paul is not a political pundit on CNN and Fox News trying to give some political commentary through his prophecy. The point of these verses, guys, is to blow away your expectations of who gets to experience the mercy of God. Right now, guys, it's incredible that Gentiles are getting to experience the mercy of God. We are people who were not part of the family of God. We were far from God, and yet God chose to seek us out from the corners of the world and bring us into the family of God. And someday in the future, despite Israel's hardness of heart and rejection of Jesus throughout this century, there's going to come a day when that script flips and the self-righteous, hard-hearted people you thought would never believe are going to come to the end of themselves and cry out for grace. Now, what does that possibly mean for you? How does this play into God's plan for your life? It means at least this. Guys, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're facing, no matter how far you think you are gone from God's grace and you think God's plan is over in your life, let me just say this. God's plan with you is not done. If there's breath in your lungs, God's not done. If you think you're far beyond grace, welcome to the club. So were the Gentiles. And yet God saved them. If he can do that, he can give you grace no matter how far you are gone. God's not done in your life. And if you have people in your life that are just like the Jewish people that are stubborn and self-righteous and you've written them off from receiving the gospel, you need only look to the future when God will one day save a bunch of Israelites, these hard-hearted, stubborn people who for the last 2,000 years have continued to reject Jesus. And if he can save a people that hardened, then imagine who he can save in your life. If God's plan to save can be trusted, you can trust the plan in his life. The last way to look at God's plan is this. God's plan should cause us to worship. I love how Paul ends this. Verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
Okay, if you get done reading Romans 9 through 11, or even just chapter 11, and all you've done is a Bible study, you've read it wrong. These chapters are not some dry theology that Paul is examining from an ivory tower. These verses lead Paul to burst out in praise and celebrate what God has done to save the world. He's not trying to give you ideas to think about. He's trying to give you inspiration to sing about. His orthodoxy, what he believes, leads to his doxology, what he praises. And guys, the same is true for us. You need both. And I think there's a few takeaways we can learn about worship from Paul here. The first is this. There is no worship without truth. There is no worship without truth. If you notice, Paul is quoting the Old Testament all over the place in this section. In other words, what he's doing is the truth of Scripture is causing Paul to worship. Tim Keller says it best. He says, true worship does not come from meditation in general, but through meditation on Scripture in particular. Believe it or not, our worship together on Sundays, guys, what we are doing when we sing isn't just singing. Our worship, when we gather together our songs, it's a form of teaching. When we pick songs to sing, we don't just pick stuff that sounds good or is easy to sing along to. We pick songs that teach the truth of Scripture because it's impossible to worship Jesus without truth. The second thing we can learn about worship is there is no truth without worship. There's no truth without worship. Notice the language here. Paul says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom, because there's feeling, there's emotion here. This means that when we worship, there should be emotion. There should be feeling. Why? Because it actually shows that we have grasped the truth that we're singing about. If I may give a little coaching here to us as a church, guys, when we sing songs about how the blood still speaks or how the sun has set us free or how the humble king has died for us, let's not stand like the frozen chosen with deadpan on our face, like these truths don't matter and aren't changing us. If, if we do that, it, it kind of shows that we don't actually believe what we're singing about. It's okay to raise your hand. This is the universal sign of surrender. You're saying, God, I'm, I'm giving myself over to you. Would you allow these truths to come into my heart? And I'm not saying fake it till you make it. I get it. We're coming here from all different walks of life and, and different uh, weeks that we've had. And some of you guys might be coming in here and you're down in the depths. And some of you guys might be coming in here and you're on cloud. And I'm not asking you to come in here and fake your emotions. But I am asking us to be honest with our hearts and with our lives and say, Jesus, Right now, I'm not feeling the truth that you're talking about. Right now, my heart is not aligned to the truth we're singing about. Would you meet me here? Would the Holy Spirit come and remind me of the truths that we're singing about? Because believe it or not, our sermons, when we teach what I'm doing here and what Keith does, they're not just teaching. They're forms of worship, too. The singing is teaching. The sermon is teaching. The sermon is worship. The singing is worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous preacher in the 19th century. I love what he says. He commented once that he hated if someone was taking notes at the end of his sermons. No judgment here. If you're taking notes right now, uh, no, no one's going to throw shade at you. But his point was this. Sermons should lead you not just to take notes. They should lead you to worship. And I think he's right. We miss the depths and truth of Scripture if it doesn't lead us to worship. And finally, you don't need to understand everything in order to worship. 
You don't need to understand everything about God in order to worship. Paul says this, how unsearchable are his ways. Who has known the mind of God? Because this means the main reason Paul is worshiping in this section is precisely because he doesn't comprehend and he doesn't know everything about God's plan. And that is what causes him to worship. A lot of people think like, uh, I, I'm not, I can't worship God. I need to understand everything about him before I give my life over to him, before I worship him. And guys, that's just not true because the reality is, is if you knew everything about God, he would cease to be God. God is limitless. By definition, that means you can't know everything about him. Think about this. If God spoke the world to, into existence, he has the power to speak and things that were not existent are created. And you think, and you have a problem with like, oh, I can't understand everything about that being. He has unlimited power. What did you expect? But you want God this way. Guys, this is why heaven will never get old. But if you want heaven for the gold streets and the mansions and the power of flight, I got news for you. You're gonna get bored with that after 100 years. You know what you're never gonna get bored with? Singing praises to Jesus and sharing stories of what he has done to save humanity. You know why? Because God is limitless. He's unsearchable. He's like a never-ending bestseller book series. He's like more treasure to discover on a hunt. He's like a hike in the mountains with always more beauty to discover. There is no bottom when it comes to knowing God, which means there's no cap in worshiping him. So church, I have no idea what our future holds, but I do know this. If you can trust God's plan to save, you can trust him with the plan in your life. Let's pray.